Restaurant Unstoppable episode 608 with Aaron Lyons. I just want to make sure that we don't get over our skis. I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. I don't want to dilute our brand. I don't want to make a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. I want to make sure that our existing stores are as high performing as possible before we introduce any new complexity or another layer. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. I'm sure you've heard of Revel, but have you heard of the Revel Advantage? It is the payment processing solution that seamlessly integrates into your Revel point of sale and platform to create a complete system tailored to your business needs. Revel manages both your POS and your payments with integrated software, hardware, and credit card processing to save you time and money so you can focus on your business. Learn more at revelsystems.com slash un stoppable here is a statistic for you 89 percent of all guests will research a restaurant online before dining out so you've got to start thinking about how you can extend your in-house hospitality and attention to detail to the online world bento box is a great place to start they will develop a restaurant website that not only leaves lasting impressions with your guests but also provides hospitality focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online and guests into your restaurant sign up today at getbento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website get on it Everybody loves payday, am I right? But loving your payroll provider, that's a different story. It's a little weird. Still, small businesses across the country love running payroll with Gusto. Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, and you can add benefits and HR support to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal, it's modern, and who knows, you might even fall in love. To learn more, head over to gusto.com slash unstoppable and when you run your first payroll you'll get your first three months free again that's gusto.com slash unstoppable with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guest aaron lyons my man aaron are you feeling unstoppable today always always yes that is what we like to hear so always an entrepreneur at heart aaron lyons was raised in austin texas and is a graduate of the university of texas where he obtained his mba with a focus on entrepreneurship and marketing and in 2014 after two years of searching for a location and investors uh, Lions opened Dish Society in Houston, Texas. Five years later, Lions and his team have scaled the concept to a total of five locations in and around Houston. And Lions attributes his success to the focus they put on purchasing from local farmers and purveyors and the people he has surrounded himself with. I cannot wait to dive into your story, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Uh, you know, I've got a couple. One of them's, you know probably pretty well known but you know everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth Uh, i think that's um very indicative of of any business especially the restaurant business um and so that's something that you know we try to (laughs) always keep in mind and then also um you know what you allow in your presence is your standard and that's a big one that we put up in all our restaurants to um just reinforce the fact that 
you know, don't walk by anything. You know, if you do it once, it becomes the standard, and then th- that standard's lower than it was exactly. before. Per- perception is reality. Whatever you yep. and your guests and your team is perceiving is the reality of yep. your situation. Uh, great, you, you, you said that perfectly, and uh, I love it too, especially in this industry. Like we all have this plan, we all have a vision of what it's going to be like, and then we turn the keys, the doors are open, and we get that punch across the face, and it's like, all right, now here's the reality of it. And it sounds like it took you two restaurant locations to kind of get exactly what it was that the original vision was. I've heard you say in the past, yes, I'm sure that'll come out in your story, but let's bring it to, uh, where it makes sense to start telling your story. So where does it make sense to start telling your story? Um, you know, as it relates to the restaurant, you know, probably around 2009, 2010, um, you know, prior to that, I I had a sort of a corporate life. I worked for a, a big four consulting firm and I traveled all over the country uh, and I lived out of a suitcase and I was on projects all over the place. And so, you know, I had a per diem. I ate out every single meal, uh, was only, you know, I was living in Dallas at the time, but I was only in town for a couple of days a week, if that. And so it didn't make sense to go to the grocery store and I didn't cook. And so uh, I literally ate out, you know, seven days a week, three meals a day. And so just throughout that process, I kind of found it rather challenging to, to find kind of the stuff that I wanted and the stuff that, I felt most people wanted. <clears throat> and that's when the wheels really started to turn for me of, you know, how, how could I create a concept that I think is scalable, um, you know, that people would really gravitate towards that would meet sort of a need in the market that I didn't feel like was being met. Um, you know, you had you had fast food, you had Chipotle starting to, to really come up at that time. Um, but that was it. And, and, you know, there was really nothing in between that and like, you know, a Houston's or you know, any, you know, more even casual places where you had to sit down or valet or, you know, you had full service all day and things like that. And, um, or, you know, 20 to $30 price points. And so, you know, for me, I was like, you know, I want to really want to create a concept that has a $30 experience for $15 was, was sort of how it started. Um, then I went to business school at UT and I used that time really as let's, let's tap the brakes real quick. Okay. Cause I think there might be a lesson or two in this first, uh, job you had out of your first round of college, mm-hmm. which was consulting. I mean, how mm-hmm. did you, gra- how did you graduate and get your first job as a consultant? Like what, what were you even consulting on? What was that? What did that look like? Uh, so I was a, just a general business consultant, uh, for Deloitte and, um, just helping clients, large clients, fortune 500 companies solve problems. Um, you know, on a larger team, I was sort of an analyst at the, an, an analyst and then a consultant and you're the low, the low man on the totem pole. So you're, you're doing a lot of spreadsheets and presentations, and uh, but you get to learn a lot. And I got exposure to a lot of different industries, a lot of different clients, and a lot of really sharp, high-caliber people. So what were some of your biggest lessons working with such a well-known consulting group, helping these other Fortune 500 companies? You must have picked up some some nuggets right there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, one is that, you know... They don't all have their shit together like you would expect. Uh, it's pretty shocking some of the stuff you would <laughs> you would see going on. In Give some, me an example without naming a name. Oh, man. Um, you know, just going into, and I would say the Fortune 5 companies, so like the top five biggest companies, you know, there, there's, there was one in particular that uh, just some of the things they didn't do, I was more, I was more surprised by some of the things they didn't do versus some of the things they did do. Um, not having certain things in place, being, you know, a 50 year old company that's worth billions of dollars. It's just, just some of those things from a training perspective or, um, HR perspectives, any, any of those things. Um, I did a lot of M and A stuff. So I worked with a lot of companies that were, you know, one was acquiring the other, they were merging or, or, you know, spinning off or whatever. And so, 
they were merging cultures, they were merging systems, they were merging just, you know, offices and, and, you know, people and, and how does that look? And, um, so I learned a lot from that. I learned a lot from working with, uh, more senior people, um, that were very high caliber. And a, a lot of those lessons I learned from just internally was attention to detail, um, executive presence and, uh, you know, just how to, um, take feedback and, and coaching and um, how so, to ask for it. And those were all valuable lessons. For what sure. do you mean by executive presence? Dive into that. <laughs> so uh, one of my first projects straight out of training, um, we had a big, you know, kind of like a board meeting atmosphere and it was after lunch. And I apparently, according to my senior manager who pulled me aside afterwards, said it looked like I didn't want to be there and I was and I was disinterested and I was falling asleep and that it was very important that these clients are paying a lot of money for us to be there and, you know, hundreds of dollars per hour and, uh, you know, you got to look the part and you, you got to look like you want to be there. You got to look like you're interested um, and you really should be interested uh, because this is your job and you're helping these people. And so uh, that was one of the first lessons that I think I learned was, you know, <laughs> depending if you're in the room with a lot of, you know, depending on who you're in the room with, you know, you need to, you need to act like you belong. You, you need to look like you're interested. Yeah. And I think it's just uh, self-awareness. Right. right? Yeah. And that thing, we, we have feelings, we, th- we have thoughts. Sometimes we project a certain uh, tone, a certain level of energy to the outside world. And we have to be mindful of what that energy is, what that, that, uh, that message we're sending with our body language, with our face, all these things in the moment, we really have to be mindful of how we're communicating, especially in the restaurant industry with guests, right? Absolutely. And, like we might not want to be there, but we have to put <laughs> that show on. We have to, you know, always on, always on stage. For exactly. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. What else did you learn? Any other big takeaways? Any other, you talked about some of the, the coaches you had, the people that influenced you, major, uh, mentors at this time worth mentioning. Not really at that time. Um, you know, I I was just taking it all in. I was just jumping from project to project and, you know, I was all over the country. Um, you know, one big lesson that I learned there was, you know, there was the perceived sort of sexy projects that, you know, everybody wanted to be on in, in San Francisco, or New York or Chicago or, you know, big, you know, Paramount, you know, as a client. So you're in Hollywood and, you know, things like that. Like those seemed really cool and everybody wanted to get on those. And then there was sort of, the the less sexy projects were you know the clients and you, people you never heard of but they were you know some manufacturing facility in in the middle of nowhere or whatever and so you know I kind of always try to avoid it you know avoid those and at some point you can't forever uh, and so I got put on a project that I was really dreading and I had like just really low expectations and I was just really I had a real negative attitude about it and when I got there it ended up being like the best project of my career at Deloitte, the, the, those, you know, few years that I was there and I learned the most and I had the best manager and I had the, the, the best team and I had the most fun in a town that was super small, the client that I'd never heard of. And I'm still not hundred percent sure what they actually did. Um, but it was just, I think that, that, that changed the way that I look at things, you know, so it's, you said this is where your biggest lessons were. What was your biggest lesson during this time? just to be open-minded and to, and to know that, you know, look, sometimes the greatest uh, learning opportunities are sort of disguised or they come in different packages than you would expect. And, you know, so for me, it, it really opened my eyes to be more open-minded 
to opportunities because they could be sort of disguised or hidden. Yeah, I think that's kind of a mentality that I have with the, even with this podcast is going into I meet so many people every week and not everybody has achieved the same in their career. But at the same time, sometimes it's those those companies that you're like, well, should I be doing this interview? And then, you know, I go into that interview kind of. I try to have the open mind because sometimes it's those people that have the, 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 what most, they to say. Yeah, the yeah, most to say, right. the, the biggest lessons, and you never know where you're going to learn. You, you have to Absolutely. look at every situation Absolutely. like an opportunity to, opportunity to learn. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier uh, that you, there were, you were more surprised at what these big companies were not doing and some things that all companies should be doing. What were some of these key things that you think all companies should be doing that even these Fortune 500 companies were not doing? You know, I think the emphasis they had on uh, training and development, um, either from a leadership perspective or succession planning or just their general outlook towards it um, was something that they just didn't see it as some critical piece um, or as important as as I think it was. And, as as, uh, you know, obviously somebody thought it was important because they had us there and they were paying us a bunch of money to, to, to solve some problems for them. But to get to that point and not really have sort of some really established fleshed out, you know, things were, were, were kind of, it's kind of surprising even to think about now. Um, you know, the training stuff that we have here now is, is a lot more advanced than some of the fortune 500 companies that, that I saw. Um, and it's really not that difficult to do. It's just, you, you've got to care enough about it to put the effort and the resources behind it. So I made a note to come back to secession planning. I think that's something that might be a fun thing to talk about at the end of our interview. Okay. Uh, but I think we, we can move on now. Uh, I just want to pull some nuggets of this time of your life, being a consultant, working with these big firms. There must have been lessons there. And I think we, we extracted a couple of them. So you came back to Austin in your... Being on the road, I think you kind of started getting into it, uh, why you wanted to break into the food and beverage industry. Uh, get Pick up there. So, you know, getting going back to the MBA was always part of the plan. Um, I've always been entrepreneurial, and uh, I knew I wasn't going to be a consultant forever. That was sort of a bridge for me, and, and it was never going to be a long-term thing. I was never going to be on the partner track. I, that, that was not something that, that I was interested in. Um, I, you know, I knew I wanted to do something. I was just kind of waiting for that idea to come up. And, you know, I'm from Austin, but Austin also happens to be one of the most innovative cities in the world as far as there's just so much activity and, and um, you know, innovation and just stuff happening there. It was really cool. And so I, w- I wanted to be surrounded by it. Um, I love, you know, University of Texas. That's where I did my undergrad. And, and Austin is, is, you know, the best city in my opinion. And, and I just grew up there and, I'm, and I just wanted to get back there. And so I was hoping that around that time something would sort of spark and, and come because I had two years to sort of really develop it. And, and the restaurant thing at that time really started to pique my interest. And so that's what I decided to explore. Um, and so while I was in business school, I used a lot of the stuff that we were learning and applying it to that. And, you know, I had like the best professors because they would assign a project and I, you know, I would go to them and I would just say, Hey, listen, I'm not, you know, I'm not really interested in this, but I am interested in restaurants instead of doing this case study on like you know, Walmart or Southwest Airlines, can I do it on Chipotle instead? There you go. And so they were like, you know, absolutely. And they were all open to it and they all supported it from day one. And so they let me sort of kind of tailor some of my projects. And then when I started getting into more of the entrepreneurial and marketing focused classes, then I was really able to have a lot more control over what I was working on. And, um, and then just vetting the idea uh, amongst my classmates, amongst the professors, some really super smart people. And, uh, it was, it was really cool. And so that's when I really decided like, I'm going to do this. Um, 
I, I was on a, a team that won a marketing competition and the, uh, one of the judges and sponsors was Yum Brands and which is the largest restaurant company, you know, in the world. And so they offered me an internship over the summer. And at first I wasn't going to do an, an internship. I was just going to work on my business plan over the summer and maybe like go work in a restaurant to, to get some actual restaurant experience. Cause I had never worked in a restaurant. Um, but I figured, you know, at least this would be paid and it's the largest restaurant company in the world. Like, you know, I'm going to learn something from this for sure. And, and I did, and it was an incredible experience and, um, exceeded my expectations. And I, and I have such a respect for, for young brands and, and all of the brands and the people that I work with there are phenomenal. Um, in fact, the CMO at the time was Brian Nickel, who's now the Chipotle, uh, he's the CEO of Chipotle. And, um, you know, I got to work with him. I got to work with just some really brilliant people. So yeah. you, you said that this is where you learned some of the biggest lessons. You, you can't just, you know, I can't just let you uh, hover over that and not <laughs> dive into some of these, these key takeaways. And what was it, Brian, you said? Uh, Brian Nickel. Yeah. yeah so Brian at the Nichols. time, I think he was like 34 and he was like the CMO of a, you know, young brand. I mean, that's insane. Like he's like a super smart guy. Yeah. And so he's, let's get in generally into like what you learned and then also how he influenced you and what you learned from his as from him as a CEO and as a, a leader of the company. You know, I, I had exposure to him, not a ton. I was, I, I reported to some other folks, but you know, the biggest lesson that I learned, uh, that I still apply and think about all of the time is, so they make all their employees go work in the restaurants for like one week a year. Everybody has to top to bottom, everybody. And so, you know, you're in the corporate office and you know, you're, you're rubbing elbows with the, the C-level folks and vice presidents. And then you have to go work at some random pizza hut in like Richardson, Texas. Okay. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm at this pizza hut in Richardson, Texas for, uh, you know, a week and I'm working with all these people and they don't know who I am. They don't know what I'm doing. They just, they just think I'm like the new guy. Right. And so I get to kind of see this behind the scenes deal of like how things actually get done. The reason they do that is because when you're when you're making decisions in an, in an, in a conference room, you know, that affect thousands of employees and millions of customers, if you don't know what's really going on, you're not going to make the smartest decision. Yeah, how can you make those decisions if you're disjointed from exactly. what's actually happening? And so the biggest lesson I learned was in in and as far in the analogy, it's a what the Pizza Hut basically. If it can't be executed by a sixteen year old on a Friday night, we're not doing it. Mm-hmm. And that 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 was their litmus test, essentially, right? That that kind of put that in my own words, but you know, I, I saw that, right? Like you can't get too complicated, you can't introduce too many new things, you can't do because if it can't get executed, then it's going to fail. Mm-hmm. So you have to keep everything in mind. And we would have these meetings, these cross functional meetings with, you know, ops and uh, finance and um, you know, the field team and marketing and everybody would be in these meetings to talk about an idea. And the ops team would be like, you know, if we did that, we'd have to rewire all the locations for different amperage to support this new piece of equipment. That's going to cost, you know, things that you don't even think about, right? Like, oh, we should make our own dough. Or we should do this or whatever. And it's like, well, actually, here's why you can't because A, we don't have the space for it. We'd have to rewire. You have to do this. You have to get a new permit. Yeah. Like, and so, it's, it's really easy to spin off ideas, right? When you're sitting sort of in, in sort of a corporate environment, but if they can't be executed, they're pointless. And so that was the biggest, the absolute biggest takeaway I took from that. And I, and I still use it every single day. Beautiful. And what about, uh, was it Brian? Mm-hmm. What did you learn from Brian as a leader? Um, you know, Brian was, uh, you know, I was intimidated at the time. I was, I was a 25 year old intern and, uh, you know, he was, um, just a really sharp, confident guy. 
and he had really great ideas. He was an idea guy. I mean, he's, he was just, but he was super smart and he was super savvy with numbers and data. And, uh, that, so I, I learned it's not only about the idea, but it's, you know, looking at data and, and, and to is support it, it. Yeah. Is it feasible? Right. Is right. So, uh, so moving on, actually, I, I kind of want to go back a little bit, uh, during the pre-interview chat, I asked you, knowing what you know now, would you have gone back to school for your MBA with the intention of opening a restaurant? And you said, absolutely without a doubt which i'll be honest which was was kind of a surprise for me because i talked to a lot of folks who say you know you really don't need an education to be successful in this industry your education is your come up your education is the people you go to choose to work for your education is the the forcing yourself in awkward situations so you can become better every day uh, but you had a lot of value in your your mba so what was it specifically that you think you got that most the most of that value from was it the relationships was it the classes why was that so important for you you know by the way i would agree with everything that you you just said, you know, I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, there's no one way to do it. Yeah. Right? And I think it's been incredibly beneficial to me. And and what I would say is I don't, I don't know, had I not gotten it, you know, I, I don't know if I have five restaurants right now. Maybe I have one, maybe I have 20, maybe I have zero. I don't know. But what I do know is, is that process helped me um, develop a stronger business acumen. It helped me think through problems more strategically um, and differently. And I think that just the approach to problem solving, I think more than anything is, is the value that was created uh, is as it pertains specifically to the restaurant and running a business. Now, look, most restaurants aren't run by business savvy people. They're run by, you know, chefs or people that came up in the industry. And that's also why most restaurants fail, because mm-hmm. they're not run by people with a lot of business savvy. And so I think what's helped me is to look at it under the lens of a business, not of a restaurant. And that's why I think we've been. Um, successful is because of that, you know, but it, you know, that it's not, it's not required. It doesn't, it, it certainly helps, but it's not a requirement. Um, I needed that. I, I would have probably made some pretty detrimental decisions early on had I not had some of those classes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so I'm really curious. Uh, you said that it really impacted your ability to solve problems. Is there a technique or an approach you use that's standardized that you can share with us or is it just kind of the no, frame of mind? It's just a frame of mind. I mean, I, I the way I look at it is you can play chess or you can play checkers. And in the way that um you know, I approach a lot of things are more long-term focused and I and I try to look 3 or 4 moves ahead versus just being sort of knee-jerk or being very really reactionary or short-term. Um whereas I think and and that became that that came through not necessarily like training but just reading a lot of case studies and in class and learning from other people and um you know I don't have a, a style or an approach or some you know template that I use it's just more or less of like well let's think about how it's going to impact this person and this person and the customer and this employee and you know what are the ramifications of this 5 years from now is this something we can do if we open 10 more stores it's you really got to like put yourself through sort of the, the calisthenics of, you know, of, of a problem. And I think that that's really what's valuable. Beautiful. The other thing I really loved about your story, which is something that's worth highlighting, is that you went into your MBA with intention. You weren't just there to get the piece of paper that said that you did it. You weren't just going through the motions because that's what society tells you you, you got to do. You had an intention to learn into to build a restaurant while you were there. And if you take that experience of going through your MBA and you're, you're using your actual vision, your dream as the driving force, you can use that time. You, you're surrounded with these experts, these, these professors that you can throw your business plan against and say, Hey, like what's, you know, what do you think of this? And the, 
they'll they'll critique you. You have your stu- your your classmates, your peers, you know. So take advantage if if you're in that 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 place right now, and you're thinking about going back to school for your MBA, and you have an idea of what you want to do. You know, make the most of that time. Don't just go through the motions. I think. Oh yeah, I mean that's huge, and <laughs> yeah, that's a better answer than what I, I provided probably. But uh, yeah, you know, look, uh, you get a lot of feedback. You get to test your your idea in a kind of a safe environment, right? And you know, there's something about having that that dot edu uh, email address that gets you access to a lot yep. of people, and and a lot of them will give you stuff that they wouldn't normally give you, and so. Um, I got to talk to some really cool people that I wouldn't have normally had access to because I was a student, right? And they and they thought of me and in, in they wanted to help me, right? Yeah. And so I thought that was really cool. The other thing that I think was critical for me from an MBA perspective was uh, thinking about it in the, the raising the, the the capital piece. So raising capital and and funds and the financing of opening a restaurant. I think was huge because I didn't really have a huge uh, grasp on that. Uh, prior. Yeah. And so had I gone into any sort of fundraising or capital structure for, um, for this concept without that, I, man, I think I could have screwed that up pretty yeah. badly. Let's get into that next, but real quick, I just want to highlight something that you said, something that I use, uh, with, when starting restaurant unstoppable, cause I went back to school for marketing and hospitality and it was while I was a student that I started this podcast and you mentioned something that's really powerful. That dot edu yeah. is a door opener. Yeah. Uh, and you, I found also that you don't even need to act, have that .edu. I mean, you can have whatever email, but if you make it a point to say that you're a student and that you want to learn, that you're a student of the industry and that you're, you're reaching out to learn from somebody, if you take that approach of just being like, hey, I'm a student, and you don't need to actually be a student to say that you're a student because we're, we're all students of life, right, right? right? But if you take that approach of, hey, I want to learn from you, I want to do whatever, if I want to I want to volunteer, and like use that, 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 uh, that almost like a, what's the word? It's a... You know, it's authentic, but it's also yeah. kind of like a, a mask, right? That's a D uh, uh, threat. It's not a non-threatening mask that right. can open doors for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think people want to help people that exactly. that are like hungry to yeah, learn, and, and I think I think people see that, and then they see the other people who just reach out because of whatever. Exactly, and and there's a difference. So yeah, it was huge. So let's let's get into it. So you you you. Uh, graduate, uh, you have your business plan. You've been working on it for two years now, three years now. Uh, you have these classes on raising money and that's kind of where we left off. So what was your approach to raising the money? How did you do it? I mean, it took you two years to get it. So it wasn't like a out of the gate success type deal. Yeah. You know, it was difficult because a lot of the investors, first of all, you know, investors notoriously people in general. And when I talk about investors, I'm talking about, you know, I started with friends and family and then got introduced to people and this and that. And, and I, you know, I pitched this thing over a hundred times and, you know, ultimately ended up with about eight, eight to 10 investors. And so I got told no a lot. Um, people aren't super eager to throw money at a new guy that's never worked in a restaurant, a bunch of money to start a concept they've never heard of that doesn't have a location yet. Um, and so, and I totally understand that. I think what helped me was, um, again, the MBA and the business side of it. And in the way that I would respond to people who had objections about, well, you've never opened a restaurant, you've never worked in a restaurant, you know, whatever. I said, you know, who do you want? If you give me a hundred thousand dollars or whatever, who, who do you want responsible for that? Somebody with an MBA, somebody who knows and understands finance and numbers and business, or somebody who's been a chef for 10 years, you know, and that usually shut it down pretty quick. I said, I can hire that person and I, and I plan to, but that's not, you know, 
we're going to grow this thing. We're going to scale this thing. You're investing in this for the long term, and you know if you don't trust me, I I understand that. But you know, would you trust a chef who never even went to school, you know, or who, who's never taken a finance class or knows nothing about a capital structure or law or anything like that? And so, um, I think that got me over a lot of humps. Um, but you know, the funny thing was the real estate was the piece that I really underestimated. You know, it was a chicken and the egg thing. Investors were like, oh, yeah, that's great. I'm in. Where's the location? Well, we don't have a location yet. Well, okay, well, let me know when you have a location, and then I'll invest. Okay, well, I'll go to a real estate developer. Where's your money? Well, we've got these investors that said they'll give it to us if we have a location. Well, we need the money before we can get the locate, the lease signed or whatever. Yeah. So it's kind of like, so that was that was a, a big struggle that I had, you know, initially. And um, most of our investors were in Austin and, and thought that this was going to be in Austin and I thought it was going to be in Austin too until we sort of hit the wall there and decided that we needed to you know expand our horizons on that and then um rebranded and started looking at Houston uh and that that's when things really started to move so going back to this chicken and the egg situation where you couldn't get the money from the investors without the land and vice versa how did you overcome that well what what eventually happened where you were able to secure both finance and land it was kind of it was kind of this dance, right? Of you know, it was a matter of securing a few key investors early on, and that really built the momentum. So we we raised about half the money early on, and that showed the other investors that like we're serious, and there's other people in this, and, and we had made a lot of traction. And so um, that got that kind of piqued their interest, but they were still sort of like, you know, I could write you a check right now, and you might not open for three years, and like my money's just you know, and, and I get that. Um, from the real estate side, honestly, I just, it was bluffing. I told him I had it. I told him I was ready and I acted like, you know, I was kind of, I had more resources than I did. Um, <laughs> and thank God it, it worked out. Um, uh, <laughs> but I kind of found like that was really the only way was to just to bluff essentially and, and not lie. I wasn't being, um, you know, disingenuous or deceitful. I just, you know, Told you believed we, it. I, well, I knew it was going to happen. Yeah, you're like you believed it. You had faith in yourself and yeah. in your investors, and you knew that if you could secure the land, you could get the capital. Absolutely. So, yeah. so I mean, it's it's not. I mean, you bluffed because you didn't have it in writing. You didn't have it concrete right there in front of you, but you believed. I knew. I knew it would happen, and and I, I, uh, you know, I I agreed to things and promised things that that I knew we we couldn't commit to at the time. Uh, but that I would figure out a way. But you also seem like a very pragmatic person, and you you did the work, you did the research, you did the planning, and you believed that you could actually pull it off. So you weren't yeah. just it wasn't just a gut thing for no, you. No, absolutely. Like I, I knew the numbers supported it, my gut supported it. Um, I there was never ever any chance that this wouldn't be successful. Uh, there was a chance that it might not even get off the ground. There was some doubts in my mind that like, man, if we can't lock down a location or if we don't get investors, like I can't just keep dragging this thing out. There was some doubt in my mind that it, that it might not ever come to fruition, but there was never any doubt about the concept and how successful it could be. Yeah. A lot of things that, that, that comes up often when I'm talking about the raising the capital with my guests, uh, they get a lot of no's. Everybody gets a lot of no's, but they, they refine their business plan. They refine mm-hmm. their pitch every time they get a no, and they try to find out why they got the no. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you just straight up. Did you refine your plan? Did you reapproach your pitch every time you, did, you, you got a, a chance to practice it and get turned down or were you pretty 
concrete and rock solid with your pitch the whole way through. You know, it's funny. I uh, I entered this business plan into several business comp- business plan competitions during business school. And so uh, kind of a Shark Tank environment, right? Yeah. I mean, with like an audience. I made it to the finals. I finished second out of 40 teams. Wow. And I was sitting in an, an auditorium with, you know, probably a couple hundred people. And then these the judges were, you know, VCs and all these, you know, CEOs and, you know, high people. And, and they were they were instructed to just like let us have it, right? And just put us through the ringer to see how we could do it. So I had already gone through that and I had already done pretty damn well at it. And one of those judges ended up investing in us after the fact, like legitimately writing us a personal check. And so um, I knew anything that I encountered after that wasn't gonna be anywhere near as as hard as that, right? And so I had already kind of gone through it. Yeah. So like I, I had... There's nothing you can throw at me right now if I'm meeting you at Starbucks that I haven't ever heard before, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I went in with that confidence and I think that helped a lot. I just think there was a lot of people, a lot of people will, there's a lot of people that that like the idea of investing, but they actually can't invest, you know? They want to, but it's like, okay, I need you to write me a check for $50,000. Ah, yeah, well, you know what? How about five, you know, or 10? Not gonna move the needle, man. Not worth the paperwork, you know, like, they wasted my time, you know? And so I think what happens to the first, the first 10 times you pitch your idea, there's a lot of passion behind it. And there's a lot of that, but the hundredth time you pitch your idea, it kind of feels robotic and mechanical or whatever. And I ran into that, you know, and I had an, I had a potential investor, I had lunch and, and, and I still remember this. And he, he ended up investing in a, like a bagel concept that never even like ended up opening. And I think like everybody lost their money and like they were paying rent on this property in Austin and and it just never got open. I, I don't even know what happened to it. And he told me, I said, man, what happened? Like, what could I have done better? Like, I don't, I don't understand. He said, man, I just didn't really get the passion. I just didn't really get it from you, you know? And that was like a big turning point for me. Cause I was like, are you kidding me? Like I am the most passionate about this, <laughs> yeah. you know? But then I started to realize like, dude, this is like the, you know, 96th person I've talked to about it. You know, I probably didn't come off with the same enthusiasm as the first five people got. And, and you know, that, that, that made me kind of sit back and, and take things in a little bit. This kind of helped, like brings me right back to the beginning of our conversation with being mindful of what you're communicating with your body, with your tone, with the yeah. energy you're putting out there. It might've been your 100th time doing this. It might've been routine for you at this point, right. but for this other person, it right. was their first time. Like right. this is their first impression. So you, you got to take that stuff into consideration, especially with this industry when you're asking for for money, yeah, the data has to be there to back it. Your business plan has to be there, but also what's that human connection, right. that emotional connection? Yeah, because they're investing in you. They're not investing exactly. in the concept. And so, you know, that was one of the things. It's it's kind of like the dating game, right? You, you go out and you, you hit on a bunch of girls, you know, hoping one of them sticks. You get told no so many times you kind of come in like defeated and you're still, you just kind of go through the motions. Yeah. And, and look, I was guilty of that. I absolutely was. I got just fatigued from doing it. We're talking about investors, not girls. Right yeah, now. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was, <laughs> was nearly married at the time, so that wasn't the problem. But um, yeah, no, I mean, it just, it's one of those things. You, you get rejected and you get the door slammed on your face so many times. It's, it's hard to pick yourself back up and go through the whole thing again. And, um, you know, you have two, three, four meetings with these people. You exchange emails, you know, months go by. And then, you know, no one will ever tell you no. They just quit responding to you. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the hard part because you put in a lot of time, you put in a lot of work 
and um, you know it's just, it's very frustrating, uh, but a great learning experience, and and uh, you know I wouldn't changed it for the world. You know, made me who I am. All right, so we're gonna take our first break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back to find out how you pulled this sucker off. So Revel Systems is a complete POS built to help grow your expanding business. I stand by Revel, and I could tell you why it's so great, but I'd rather get my man Colton Schultz, who's with Grain Junction Subs in the Craft Cave, to tell you why he loves Revel. We have been working with Revel for several years, who has partnered with us to streamline our operations. We have implemented delivery management, employee management, sales reporting, kitchen display screens, and so much more. We also utilize mobile order takers and kitchen display systems that are extremely customizable. Nice. So if there's just one thing that you love the most about Revel Systems, what would it be? It's definitely their vast reporting abilities on the back end. We utilize a lot of the reports such as speed of service, taxes, sales reports, labor reports. It's all there to help you run your business. Beautiful. Guys, and if you're listening to this, Revel works with businesses that are looking to implement cutting-edge technology that helps increase revenue, improve efficiencies, and enhance experience of their employees and their customers. To learn more, head over to revelsystems.com slash unstoppable. All right, we're back in. Uh, take us to the point. You, you you have your money. You have your, your, your location. When did that happen? Like When that happened, the day that you knew you had the money, you, you had the location, how far apart were those two goals apart from each other getting the money and getting the location man so we started negotiating a lease in 2012 and this was a brand new it was an apartment complex and we were going on the first floor of a mixed-use development and and i went to look at it and it was dirt and like a few beams and so i couldn't really it was hard to envision it and at the time the first time i looked at it i still lived in austin so i didn't even know the part of Houston, it ended up being our first location off San Felipe in the Galleria area. And I knew the Galleria area was, was strong and it's, but it's, you know, it's about a mile away. And so I didn't really know the area that well. And so I was just like, man, I just sat in the parking lot of a Zoe's kitchen across the street and just stared at it for like three hours. And I went into Zoe's and I just, you know, like I did in business school, I counted guests, I counted tables, I counted employees. I, um, figured out, like backed into their sales based on, you know, some assumptions that I was making and talked to some people at the area and, and just did some, you know, and so it start the process on that property started in, in 2012. And then we ended up signing the lease in 2013 and the lease took, man, it's like four or five, six months to get the wow. lease signed. And, um, you know, once the lease gets signed, kind of things start moving pretty quickly and the, the clock starts ticking. What took so long for the lease to get signed? Any lessons there? Um, you know, we were dealing with a big you know, corporation and it just, it just kind of moved slow. Owner. The property owner and the project wasn't, it was still a year away from opening months away from opening. So they weren't, they weren't like, they didn't have no the urgency. same sense of urgency. Yeah. Right. So, um, and so it was that, that, that was most of the reason. Now we can get it done in a month or two. It's not that big of a deal. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, so it, it kind of dragged out and dragged out and dragged out. And I sort of had some people, some partners and some people that I was really trying to get involved in this at the time, but they were kind of, this was th- their involvement was kind of contingent upon the lease. And so same with the investors. And so I had, I had all these kind of like balls in the air that I was juggling. And I, if one of them fell, the whole thing falls apart. Right. And so it was a really stressful time and I wasn't sure we were going to get the lease. Um, we were up against a local kind of chain that had four or five restaurants, a big family name, and they, they ended up pulling out at the last minute. And so we ended up getting the lease and when they agreed to it, I just remember, 
I didn't really even get a chance to like enjoy it. I kind of did, but it was like immediately okay. Like oh shit, now Next. we got to get this person. This per- <laughs> yeah. we got to we got to start lining this stuff up, and that's kind of what happened. Um, and so it, it happened really quick. Um, we were able to secure. You know, the the funny thing is, you need the money for the construction. So when you sign the lease, you know, we had already paid for the attorneys and bills and all that stuff, and it wasn't that huge. You don't really need the money until you start construction. And so it gave me a little bit of time to sort of close the gap because now we had a lease. Now we had a location. But you're bringing up a really important point right now. And I think that is that most people, when they are determining how much it's going to cost, they, they figure out how much they're going to raise. They never seem to factor in the expense for lawyers and uh, accountants and uh, all these these things you're going to need to protect yourself yeah. early on. And it sounds like you did account for that. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean... Look, you know, and for me, I started with the intention of like, this is going to be a brand and we're going to open a bunch of these. And so that's how everything was structured and framed from the beginning. That cost us a little bit more money, but long term, like that's the way it has to be structured. Where did, where did it cost you more money? How did it cost you more money? Why? We had to create different entities. The, the, the structure was a little bit more complex, so it required uh, more documents and more things to be drafted from our attorney. Um, it was just a more complex structure. Um, but that's a huge lesson there too. Treat it like you own it, or treat it like it's like your little company, like a big company from yeah. day one. Yeah, and that makes transitioning into it and scaling easy later when the when the the the, the key has turned and all the parts are moving. Right, and you're locked into the day to day where you don't really have the time to get out and to work on the brand and on right. systems and processes. If you get those those soft systems, or you get it as close as possible to a big company from day one, then it's that this, the process for scaling uh, is much easier, which you know I think is evident in your story because after one year, you went to two locations a year after you went to three locations. Is this because you put that time and energy in early on? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the time and the energy. Now what I'll say is, you know, once we actually opened, uh, you know, I don't want to say it all went out the window, but that was not on the forefront of my mind. That what was, was not on the forefront of your mind? Like the expansion. Gotcha. It was like survival, like keeping our head above water. We got to get through this first six months. We got to like make our first payroll. We got it like everything became very short-sighted day-to-day versus strategic, right? Big picture. And so, um, you know, and, and I don't think you can really avoid that, Uh if you're opening your first location, um, you you have to be very ingrained into the day to day stuff. To be, which is again why it's so important when you have that extra bandwidth, that extra energy to vision to put yeah. that plan in place. Because when you turn the key and you put your nose down, you're not going to have extra energy at the end of the day. Oh, to, none at all. To yeah. envision and to get creative, that takes a lot of energy. Yeah, but what I will say is that from day one, the vision was always to expand and to grow and sort of everyone bought into that and so everybody was sort of working towards that and it and it was kind of like this you know unconscious thing like we just like yeah we're gonna open another one like you know it just so the systems and the things that we started to put in place you know had to be scalable and and is this going to work with two you know one of the examples is you know we have a seasonal menu in our first location we were changing the menu four times a year well, when you open a second location, it's hard to change the menu four times a year across two locations. Mm-hmm. So then we went to two times a year and we changed some of the verbiage on our menu to say seasonal this, to seasonal that, so that we could change ingredients without having to reprint menus and do new training and do, do a lot of that stuff. So, um, you know, we learned those lessons along, but that was always part of the plan. And so that, that thought process of acting like we already had 10 stores when we only had one, 
was was huge. Yeah, yeah. made scaling that much easier. So uh, one thing that I, I caught you saying in other in my research and other interviews I watched was that in the early days, um, you wish you could have done a couple things differently. Knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently in the early days? I would have raised more money, um, and I would have spent it differently. Um, one of the things that I didn't realize was a lot of the budget and everything that we had created was based on going into like a, you know, one story, two story shopping center or whatever. Well, our first location was in an eight story building. When you have to run all of your MEP, which is mechanical, electrical and plumbing and all of these things up eight floors at about a thousand dollars plus per foot, linear foot, uh, the costs get out of hand. You know, and when you're going into a project where the electrical and the gas tie-ins are 300 feet away on the other side of the project and you have to run all those lines, those are the things that like, I had no idea. Okay. And so those things quickly ate up our entire construction budget to the point where we had really nothing left. And all we could do was put paint on the walls. I was driving to restaurant auctions in Dallas and all over the you know state. We went to uh, one in Louisiana. We ended up buying all this used equipment and used furniture and stuff and bringing it back in trailers. And, um, you know, that's, we had to do it, you know, patio furniture and we mismatched chairs, all this stuff, not because it looked cool because it didn't really, but because it was cheap and that's all we could do. Cause we blew all of our money on stuff that was in the walls and the, the roof that you can't see. And that was a big lesson for me. And I wish I would have had more money and done more research so that I could have opened the right way. Cause we had to kind of make some sacrifices that sort of, um, inhibited our like ability to execute the way that we really could. And that, that was unfortunate. Um, and then just hiring, you know, probably 20 more people than what we did to yeah. open. That was the big part. So that's what I wrote down, uh, raise more money. Uh, I also wrote down, uh, too much too soon and hire more people. Uh, but I'm curious, did you work in a buffer, uh, in the early days? Did you assume that you were going to go over budget and did, was that buffer just not enough? Uh, absolutely worked in a buffer and the buffer was blown very early on because you get into these construction delays things start popping up 5,000 here 10,000 here 2,000 here and then always gonna be something always yeah and so before you know it you're you're 100 grand over but you it's like because it's like 26 different things you know it's not like one thing and so you know we did put in a buffer what killed our buffer was really the time it wasn't necessarily you know we weren't really off very much on like a lot of pr- predictions of like how much things were going to cost. Cause I had done a lot of research. Like I knew how much refrigerators and, you know, grills and stuff were. So, so just keeping people on retainer that, right. Like- it was like, you know, we hired a chef and his wife from Austin and, and moved him down and, you know, we, we were paying, he was on salary yeah. and, and like if we opened a month or two later, he still had to get paid. Yeah. And, you know, I had, I had brought down, I had partnered with, uh, an old fraternity brother of mine at the time and, and had him move down from Austin and, and sort of the same thing. But, you know, he, he bought in to the company, uh, as an investor and, um, as well. So he had his own skin in the game. And so some of his salary had to get deferred. I wasn't taking a paycheck. There was a lot of those things that we ultimately had to compromise. Um, but yeah, the, the expenses still go, you know, attorneys fees, things like that. So we ended up having to like lease, our POS equipment and some of our equipment to free up cash for things that we couldn't do. And so but imagine if you didn't make that buffer, you would have never got off the ground or you would have had to go out and gain more re- your, or uh, try to get more capital from more, more investors or yeah. When you're, when you're, when you're asking for capital, 
when you really need it and you're desperate, like you, that's not a good thing. Yeah. Uh, I bet and, that guy would have seen the passion in your eye then. Yeah. <laughs> the desperation and he would have gotten a lot more equity than he should have. Um, so, you know, we did have to actually go back to the well a little bit at the end, at the very end. Um, and, and it was, it wasn't for a ton of money, but yeah. it was, it, 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 it was necessary. Um, but yeah, just huge learning lesson for, for sure. So you sacrifice on the vision. Were you talking more, uh, like, uh, brand wise, like visually or what about operational? No, I think, I think both aesthetically, right. Cause like, you know, I wanted to have nicer uh, finishes on the walls as far as like using brick. I didn't want just like drywall everywhere. Yeah. Painted drywall looks boring. Um, you know, nicer light fixtures, nicer furniture, you know, things like that. Trying to deliver that $30 experience. Exactly. Right. And so, so there was some of that. Um, and then part of it was, you know, operational uh, from an execution standpoint, from an equipment standpoint, or, um, you know, we really need this piece of equipment, but we can't afford it. So we talked about the POS earlier. Yeah. We're just going to make this work. And well, that you're going to outgrow in four months and you're going to have to buy the other one anyway. And so, um, there were things like that. I, I don't think I compromised the vision. I think I compromised, you know, certain aesthetic things that weren't necessary to running the business. Yeah. But I, I also think, I mean, we mentioned earlier, you want to treat uh, your small business like a big business from day one. That's mm-hmm. how you scale. But also big Good things don't happen overnight. You got to start somewhere. You got to start s- somewhere. You got to yeah. get in the game. And that, that, you know, that's a big thing that I tell people. There's a lot of, you know, I, I talk to and mentor a lot of um, students that are coming out of school. They get my name through the alumni database or they hear my story or whatever. And, and they're going through something similar, whether it's a restaurant or a totally different type of startup. And, uh, you know, so they, they ask me for advice and, and they, they're real like, you know, conservative about this and that. And I'm like, look, you know, you're, you're, if you keep up with this approach, you're still going to be asking for advice five years from now and someone else is going to be doing this. Like you got to get in the game. You can't just start, can't stay on the sidelines forever. So, um, and some of that is you, you have to make some sacrifices, you know, the lease that we negotiated for our first restaurant, not that great, man. Like we negotiate that lease today, way more in our favor. But they knew they had the leverage. Yeah, and, you got to start. You yeah, start. And, and it, you know, look, it, it's not like biting us in the ass or anything, but like, you know, we could have done better on that, but we had no leverage. The other part about this, uh, too much too soon. And you already mentioned earlier in the, the conversation, the big lesson you got at Young Brands was keeping it simple, stupid, right? Can a 16-year-old do it? Is that kind of what you meant by too much too soon? Did you try to do too much with an inexperienced staff? Were you trying to achieve too much with the people that didn't quite have the experience to pull it off. You know, that's interesting. I don't, I don't know if we were trying to do too much. We did try to keep it simple. We've actually gotten, um, more complex since then. Um, we just didn't have enough people. We didn't hire enough people and, and it wasn't cause we didn't want to it's just cause they just weren't there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think too much too soon when, when I hear that, that comes to, like we weren't prepared for the volume that we got when we opened, which is a great problem. Gotcha. Better than an empty dining room every night. Uh, but that w- it was too much too soon from a I, – I didn't realize sort of how quickly things were going to escalate. I thought it would take us six months to even really get any traction and start building any sort of following, and it, and it happened almost immediately. Wow. And that's what we weren't ready for. And – um 
that that was a big punch in the face for so sure. So you're at five locations now from 2014 to the current day. So about a location every year. Yeah. Take us through the the scaling and growing. How you transitioned out of the day to day to more working on the scaling and all that. Take us through that process. Yeah, that's a great question because I think that's a lot of that's what people struggle with, right? You got to work on the business, not in it. Mm-hmm. And 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 to some degree, you're going to have to work in it for a while, but you got to pull yourself out at some point. And so. You know, I think for me, it was we were presented an opportunity for a second location that was um, it was it was a great opportunity. And it and I knew that it probably something similar wasn't going to come along for a while. So I felt like I had to jump on it. I didn't necessarily feel like we were ready. It was terrifying. By the way, I got this I got this um, thing sent to me uh, the like the month that I had my first child. So we opened in January of 14 and my son was born in July and I got the um, sort of flyer on this deal like around July. And then I think we ended up signing the lease in October, November and opening in March. And so it happened really quickly. So we didn't really have a chance or an opportunity. I mean, we just had to do it, you know, and that kind of forced it. It forced me to pull myself out. Yeah, you're never going to be ready exactly. until you make yourself ready. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And so it was a catalyst that really pulled pulled me out. Um, and so, you know, that was always sort of my goal was to pull myself out from the day to day stuff. Not because we were short staffed. I couldn't do that. I was working seven days a week, 12, 14, 15 hours every day, every single position. And, um, it was a great learning experience for me and, uh, it was necessary. But, you know, once we started, we caught our breath, we got our feet underneath us. We got a lot of great press at the beginning. Um, and because of that, we started attracting, kind of higher caliber people. And so, you know, the hiring thing got a little bit easier, still, still challenging, but got a little bit easier. So we were able to kind of put some, you know, higher caliber people in place, which allowed me to free myself up a little bit and focus on some other things. And so that was it. It's, it's hard. You, You know, I think the biggest thing is you have to let things go. And I think a lot of people feel like if they don't do it themselves, it's not going to get done the right way. And, Sometimes that's true, but what I would say is I would rather, you know, have, uh, you know, five people doing things for me at 90% than me trying to do all five things because I'm probably only going to get one of them done. Yeah, or do it all at 75% exactly. because you're, you're spread too I'm thin. spread too thin. And so uh, you, you have to let some things go. And you have to be okay with knowing that some of those things are going to slip through the cracks. Mm-hmm. And I think the moment that you start to really, you know – I guess, uh, you know, realize that and it's that that's when things start to to move forward. So you didn't really start uh, moving and transitioning out until after you had signed on the second lease. Uh, And you said you started getting some good press to attract yourself to attract onto yourself the right people. Were you pushing for that press? Were you hiring a publicist? Were you were you being proactive in getting that or did it just come organic? It's both. I mean, we got a lot of organic uh, press, uh, you know, at the time in Houston, there wasn't really a, a, anything like kind of what we did at the time, well, one or two places, but not, not really a lot. So it was, it was kind of a novel deal. Um, I just thought we were just going to be this little neighborhood place and, you know, only people within a few blocks would even know who we are. Cause Houston's such a big city. Uh, but we really got some really strong press and we did have a publicist, um, helping out and she still was, she's done a great job. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, that, that helped out tremendously and it's a big expense, you so, know, Yeah, but it's necessary. But I it think comes, it's but huge. But it pays for itself, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's a, a conversation that's come up recently is like, 
like, can you even make it today without a publicist? A lot of people will say, you know, get a good publicist because you need that, you, you, especially early on to create that buzz. And I feel like the, 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 the players at the top of the game, they're, they're budgeting. They're putting money aside yeah. for these people who are, who are bringing media to them, who are bringing press to them. I almost kind of feel like it's, uh, and this isn't a slam towards you or anybody, but it's almost gotten to the point where it's a little disingenuous and you can never almost believe exactly what you see in the press. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I don't know if disingenuous is the right word. I think it's definitely an advantage and, you know, the people that have the best publicists get a lot of, a lot of the press, whether it's as deserved as not, uh, as some of the other concepts or some other players that don't have publicists, then there's not getting that opportunity. Right. I think, I think that certainly happens for sure. And then that's, you know, I think any industry, what I would say, what I would advise is, you know, I think the reason that we had a publicist and we got so much good press at the beginning is is part of the reason we got punched in the face. And so, you know, and we, we made a bad first impression on a lot of people. So what I would say is don't like, you don't necessarily have to open with a publicist, like get your shit together, make sure you can like run a shift without having to lock the doors. Yeah. You, you, you better deliver because if you hire a publicist and they, they send a bunch of people into your restaurant, you better deliver because they're never going to come back. That's a good point. And so I would, I would say don't rush into the, make sure your operations are sound and your staff is trained and like you can execute then pull the trigger and hit the gas we kind of did it all at the same time and that 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 wasn't smart got you so i mean it's crazy to think we're already at 55 minutes of recording time uh anything that you want to talk about any areas of expertise uh, areas of strength we haven't really even talked about scaling some of the other things that uh come with scaling from two to three or three to four where do you want to go for the next like five or ten minutes um you know i don't know um I think what's funny is a lot of people don't realize or, or think it's it's kind of counterintuitive. Running five restaurants is easier than running one. How so? Um, you just have you when you have one restaurant, you're kind of doing everything, uh, and it bogs you down, and it's very tiring, and it's very um, exhausting, and and you don't necessarily have the ability to bring on resources to grow and to make yourself better. Once you have five restaurants, you have the resources to be able to do some cool stuff and you have the ability to hire people to um, do things that you were doing, but at a much higher level and a much more effective level because that's their only job, right? It's not just a few hours of your week. That is somebody's only job. And so they're going to do it much better than you could. Um, And so that starts to... um, really benefit and then you know you get the economies of scale and you attract people who are attracted to companies that grow and they want those opportunities and you can promote people from within and um you can attract investors and real estate people are all over you now because they've seen your success the tables have totally turned isn't that weird how that happens totally turned um (laughs) so yeah you can't find a place now like you gotta turn places away right exactly yeah it's crazy i mean i say no to stuff every probably three times a week i say no to stuff and it's it's most of it's really great stuff great projects but we just don't we we don't we can't do them right now so why do you say no what is going on that makes you not be able to to say yes i just want to make sure that we don't get over our skis you know, I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. I don't want to dilute our brand. I don't want to make a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. I want to make sure that our existing stores are as high performing as possible before we introduce any new complexity or another layer. Um, I don't want to overexpand. I've seen so many people fail 
because, and these are people that everybody talked about, like, oh, this concept, this is a hot concept, fast-growing concept. Five years later, bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. You know, or they went from 26 locations back down to three. You know, because they grew too quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and it's dangerous. If you don't have systems in place, you know, it's like you, you start on the, if you, I, I think about it like you're building a big office tower, right? If you don't spend enough time on that foundation, you can't support 40 floors on top of you. If you start building the, the eighth floor when you're not even done with the foundation, Topple over. you're done. And that's what happens. And so, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time. And so we did open our second store about 14 or 15 months after we opened our first. But then almost two, year, two years went by before we opened the third store. And so that two years is when we really honed in on our systems and our processes and hiring people and an HR person and like really investing in technology and systems and things like that to make us better, more efficient so that when we did open the next restaurant, it didn't didn't hurt as much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So that was one of the questions I had for you when you were scaling, how did you know, how did you prioritize what to outsource or hire for going forward? Did you have a priority? Like, was it where the, the, the pain was the most or what was it? Yeah, I think it's the pain. Uh, I think where you're feeling the pain the most, where, where we were spending a lot of our time, like where a lot of our headaches came from. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you scale, you hire more and more people. And so, you know, when you have a hundred employees, that's a big undertaking and that's not something that I can just do in addition to everything else. And so kind of HR was sort of the first place we really looked, um, and hired. And then culinary was, you know, was another, were you outsourcing or doing this all in house at first? Um, I mean the payroll and stuff we were outsourcing, but the, who'd you go for? Who'd you go with outsource local companies or yeah, local company. Um, we do it in house now. Um, but yeah, we, we outsourced the sort of the technical components of it, but like just the day to day, like dealing with employee interactions and stuff like that, like that was all like, we did all of that stuff, gotcha. the training, we did all that stuff, you know? And so, um, we were able to hire somebody that their full-time job was to create training material and content and put it in an e-learning platform and, um, you know, an LMS and, and like, I, c- I couldn't do that. What e-learning platform were you using or what LMS were you using? Litmus is what we use right now. Gotcha. Um, so cool. So uh, a couple other things that just had my interest. Uh, one was uh, the the actual. You're not fast casual. You're not fine dining. You're not casual dining. You're, you're kind of a a malleable mix of things, right? And yeah. you transition for breakfast, lunch, and brunch. You do uh, counter service mm-hmm. for dinner. You do full service. Right. I've personally worked in an operation where they did that, and. From experience, I know that it's not easy right. to be two different things, uh, share a space and have systems overlap, and then have to like. How did you see that being a challenge? Was that hard for you? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, what do you do to be able to be multiple operations in, under one roof? So, originally, that started. Originally, we were just purely fast casual. We were counter service all day. Not when we opened, but in the business plan, the original business plan. Um, and so, you know, throughout those, I guess, two years, you would call it of, I wrote the business plan. Now I'm raising money. Now I'm, you know, looking for locations. I still went out and ate. I didn't stop doing research. I didn't stop tweaking the brand. I didn't stop tweaking the business plan. What I would see is, you know, you go to Chipotle, you go to Zoe's Kitchen or Panera or any of these other fast casual concepts. They're dead at night. Nobody goes there for dinner. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there. I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to pay rent on three or 4,000 square feet, but I'm only going to utilize it two hours a day. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Why don't people go to fast casuals at night? 
Well, because they don't really care about waiting in line. Like speed is not an issue at yeah, they're night, not right? Their, they're, they're not on their lunch break. Yeah, they're not yeah. in a hurry. They don't have like 30 or, four, or an hour, you know? So, and they're usually with their family. So they want to sit down. They want to be waited on. And so uh, there was a couple of uh, places I saw in Austin. I was still kind of living in Austin that were, that had started to transition to this. It was kind of a really new thing. And I thought it was kind of interesting. And so um, that that's really what, what got me thinking about it. And, you, you know, you can have more alcohol sales at night. You know, if you get a beer during lunch on a Wednesday, okay, there's not a lot of people that are going to do that. You're certainly not going to get two beers because you're not going to go wait in line again to go get a beer. And so at night, though... Same thing. Like if, if, you, if you order a glass of wine and you have to go back up to the counter to order it, you're not going to get a second one or you're probably not going to need a bottle either. And so, you know, the focus on alcohol sales and things like that and driving our, our PPA with desserts and appetizers and things like that really um, allowed us to capture a larger audience for dinner. And so that's, that's why we made the shift. But it is, um, you know, operationally, it's not as difficult as, as a lot of people think. Uh, it can confuse the staff and the guests sometimes, but, um, it's really, it's actually, you know, we've, we've gotten it down to where it's actually pretty seamless. So what have you done operationally and, uh, how have you communicated this to your, not so much the staff, but to the guests? Cause I can see how that can be confusing for a guest. I was here for lunch. I stood here and now you yeah. want me to sit down. Like, how did you overcome those hurdles? The first restaurant, uh, was more or less designed to be kind of counter service and so the design implications it kind of make it more confusing so moving forward what we did was we designed a lot of that ambiguity out of it so that if you walked in during dinner it was very clear that there's a host there you don't even see the registers where you would order so there's no there's not there's no confusion because somebody's there to greet you and then during the day there's a sign that says please form you know line down the hallway with arrows we put stanchions up so it's very clear like on, on cattle right? yeah, like, yeah 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 and it's very it's very intuitive and at all of our restaurants basically when you walk in the, the main entrance you're at the end of the line queue and so we do that on purpose right um, so that when you walk in you're you're pretty much already in line but at night we kind of put a host stand out we just yeah. wheel a host stand out and there's somebody standing there and so it's it's um and we take the signage we just flip the signs around and things like that so it's a little bit different the the servers where uh we go from kind of like t-shirts to like dish society branded t-shirts to you know button-up gingham shirts at night um aprons um linens on the table instead of paper napkins but the menu's the same uh, for the most part, there's a couple of appetizers, things that we don't offer during lunch from a, just from an execution and a speed standpoint. Um, but from the kitchen standpoint, they don't really feel a difference. So it's just, it's really a matter of bringing servers in the bartenders are this, they do the same thing as they do during the day. They just maybe are a little bit busier. Um, but it's really, you know, you go from cashiers to servers and we cross train a lot of those people. So there's a lot of people that do both. So, so what's the future look like? Uh, I, I, heard you saying that you, you know, I think it was about two years ago you said that eventually you're going to hit a saturation point yeah. with Houston have you do you feel like you've hit that point I think we're one or two away from hitting that point um you know Houston's it's a massive city I mean there's it the, is a massive it's city. huge I realized that in the half hour drive over here when going yeah. 60 miles an hour and never leaving the city right no it's like <laughs> you know the joke is it, it takes 30 minutes to get anywhere in Houston or an hour to get anywhere in Houston um and so it's just big uh so you know, I think we have hit all the major kind of areas. We like we like sort of underserved, uh, very dense demographic, like high demographic, high education, high affluent demographics that are um, sort of neighborhoods, but still 
pretty metro as far as their accessibility to, to highways and office buildings and you know big things like that shopping centers um suburbs are not in our that's not something i'm interested in i'm not interested in up and opening in suburbs um we have a we have a location in the suburbs now and it's just it's just totally different mm-hmm. um and so well, focusing on those areas and those underserved markets where there's a gap between you know sort of fast food and, and nicer places and like I, you can't just go to a nice place all the time to eat lunch when you have 30 minutes or whatever and so where's that place where's that neighborhood hangout and so that's where we that's where we want to be but i think we open one or two more in houston and then we start looking outside so what is the how do you know you you've reached a point of saturation what's what's the parameter you're measuring or is it just more of a gut feeling type thing I think there's pockets of, of Houston and, and every city's totally different by the way, but there's pockets of Houston where the people that are in that pocket don't leave that pocket. So regardless if you have a location five miles away, if it's not in their pocket, they're they're not they're never gonna go to it. Yeah. It's it's like a different city to them. And so I think you can get away with putting locations five miles apart because it's like a totally different world to some people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, even, it's like, it's like crossing the border, you know, it's like, you know, they just don't want to do it. And so, um, I think that's, I don't know if that's necessarily unique to Houston. I think all cities sort of have that. Um, but you know, Houston's so big geographically, but also from a density perspective that, you know, you can open a restaurant five miles apart. Now, what we have seen is the more restaurants we open, we're certainly cannibalizing from existing restaurants. Mm-hmm. You know, that happens. We know that. Um, as we become more accessible to people, um, people will dine at certain locations less because another one is closer to them, whatever we've seen that. Um, but yeah, I think for me, it's, I still, I don't want it to be, I don't want to be Starbucks, not my goal. Yeah. I don't so want to be on every corner. It's, it's interesting. Cause you mentioned, uh, part of the vision for the, the, the whole operation was to be a place that, that was healthy. Uh, that didn't feel like a chain. That didn't feel right. corporate. Right. Um, here you are at five locations, looking at maybe Dallas and, and Austin as, or maybe even San Antonio. Uh, how do you plan? What's your What's your plan for scaling uh, while not losing the the charm in the uh, the the relationship variables that come with being small that you've gained with this uh, society? Like what? How do you plan on trying to stay small small while scaling? I guess. I, that's a good question, and it's it's um, it's something that's kind of cool to have to actually think about now. But um, you know, I think for us, our approach and our culture is always going to be sort of um, startupy, gritty. You know, um, and I think that that's going to carry it. I think our design and our aesthetics, and we don't design restaurants that look like chain restaurants. We design restaurants that look like that's the it's the only one. It's a neighborhood restaurant, and there's people don't. I don't want people to know that there's a bunch of them necessarily. Yeah. I want them to feel like that that's their dish society. That's their neighborhood restaurant. And, uh, you know, so it's a design thing. It's a culture thing. It's just knowing, uh, about your surroundings. Can there be too many dish societies? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I don't want that, you know, I, I don't want to dilute the brand. You yeah. know, I, I would rather preserve, preserve the brand and, and some of the cachet with the brand. I don't want to dilute it and I don't want to open 12 in Houston, whether they would support it or not, or whether I could, it's just, I, I, that's not what I want to do. I got you. So this is a question I'm starting to ask all my guests. Uh, and that is how would I should start by saying the mission statement of restaurant unstoppable is to inspire, empower and transform the industry. So how have you personally transformed? How has Aaron Lyons transformed in the past 
what is it now? Uh, seven years. Who were you when you first opened your first restaurant? Who are you today? Well, I'll start in 2014 when we opened the first restaurant. And so in the last five years, um, 2014, Aaron was uh, an asshole. I was, I was, I was not, um, sort of that charismatic visionary leader that people were going to fall on the sword for. I was very angry. I was very resentful. Um, the moment things didn't go well, I was, you know, I never took ownership. It was always someone else's fault. I didn't like the culture and I would just blame, blame people for a lot of the problems and the issues we were having. And then until finally one day it, it, it hit me and it sunk in that like, you need to look in the mirror, dude, because this is all a reflection of you. This is all a reflection of your style and people take their cues from you and your culture is a reflection of, of, of you, of the leader. And so once I sort of realized that, um, things started to change. I started to, I've, I've got a personal coach, a leadership development coach, uh, who I've worked with for, for the entire time. Um, and I think he's probably the closest thing to like a mentor that I would say that I have, uh, who's really kind of shaped my life and the way that I think about things. And, um, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to make it sound like I'm, you know, Herb Kelleher, or like Sam Walton or like this, this great like leader right now. Cause I'm not, um, but I've transformed substantially over the last five years on, um, really just taking ownership of things and, and, you know, you know, if there's a flaw or there's something that's a breakdown, it's usually a problem with a system that exists or is not being followed or doesn't exist. Yeah. It's usually not a, a people problem. And so, you know, once you kind of understand that and you start to look at a breakdown, okay, well, let's, let's look at what happened, right? Well, we don't have a system for that, you know? So I can't blame you and I can't get mad at you, whatever employee, you know, line cook or cashier or whatever, because you weren't trained on that because we don't have a training program and that's my fault, mm. you know? And so I think once you kind of, once I sort of started to internalize that, um, things just started to shift for me and the culture, you know, the culture changed and a lot of people... Uh, started to respond to that. And, um, it was just, man, I was just going through a lot of stress, dude. You know, I, you know, and, and I was young, I was younger. I had never really been in a position to lead. You know, we had 30 something employees when we opened the first store. And so I'd never managed 30 something people before. Um, and, and by the way, an MBA is not going to teach you how to do that either. It doesn't matter where you go. There's just experience. It's, you, you can't, you, you, you can't get that other than experience. And so, um, that was a big, a big, uh, eye-opening experience for me. Awesome. Uh, this has been a great conversation. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. One more time. We'll be right back for the speed round. So this probably does not come as a surprise to you, but as you can imagine, I look at a lot of restaurant websites because I'm constantly researching my next guest, successful restaurateurs, and you'd be surprised how many of those people have bento box websites. I mean, I almost know instantly when looking at these websites because they're always so stunning and they always check every box, everything that a good restaurant website should have. 
these websites have them, and it's because they're going to Bento Box to get the work done. And not only will Bento Box leave a lasting impression with your guests, but Bento Box websites come with hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online. With Bento Box, you can easily update menus, promote events, share press, sell gift cards, take catering orders, and book private events directly from your website. Bento Box puts you in control so you can focus on what matters most, your restaurant. Bring your restaurant hospitality online with bento box by signing up today at getbento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. It's the entrepreneurial myth, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's the idea that when you open your own restaurant, life is going to get easy because you get to do exactly what it is that you love, whether that's front of house or back of house. And then reality kicks in, right? You've got to do all this other stuff that comes with owning a business like taxes, HR, payroll, really boring stuff. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, HR actually easy for small business. And if you want to add on 401k or health benefits, it's a breeze. Those old school clunky payroll providers just were not built for the modern small business. Not to mention, you, you've got to compete with the big guys. But how do you compete with the big guys when you don't have big guy bucks? Well, with Gusto. That's how. Get back to doing what it is you love and let Gusto handle the rest. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you'll get your first three months free when you run your first payroll. That's Gusto.com slash Unstoppable. Again, Gusto.com slash Unstoppable. We're back, and the first question I have for you is, what is your it factor, a habit of trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? I think I kind of like naturally am pretty in tune with what guests want and, and how to give it to them and deliver it. And I think that's, it comes naturally to me. So I think that's probably it. What is your biggest weakness? I'm impatient, man. <laughs> what is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? A uh, natural inclination towards hospitality and, and guest focus. What is your biggest challenge today? Uh, hiring really solid people and, and getting enough of them to support our growth. How are you overcoming it? Um, you know, building a brand in a, in a culture that people want to be, be with and be around and, and, you know, be involved in. I think you, you got to create something that attracts people. Share one code of conduct or behavior. You teach your team a way to be a way to act core value. Um, you know, I think I said earlier in my quote, you know, what you allow in your presence is your standard. And so, you know, you can see it on my board, you know, what are we tolerating? What do you tolerate mm. and why? What is one standard of service you teach your team? Something that's standard within your business is not standard within the industry. I mean, our standard is ex exceptional experiences. That's our mission statement. And so uh, we arm people with the ability to do whatever they need to do to create an exceptional experiences. And we don't put a lot of ramifications around it. What is one book that makes a better person or restaurant operator? Mandatory reading for all of our managers is uh, way of the shepherd. And then Positively Outrageous Service. Those two books, I think, are critical for leaders and restaurant people. Pick one book and give us one lesson from those books. Um, so Way of the Shepherd, I think it's sort of, there's, uh, it's, it's, I won't get into the whole thing, but it, basically inspecting your flock, right? Like touching your people and, and really understanding what they're going through and, and what, what motivates them and, and, you know, just, just touch your, you know, inspect your flock, touch your, touch your people. Basically. What is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? 
I think business acumen and, and legal acumen. I think a lot of restaurant owners um, negotiate deals that are uh, financially don't make sense, and they are too afraid to get attorneys involved or whatever, and they end up um, rushing into decisions that they shouldn't make. If you think it's too expensive to hire an attorney, imagine how expensive it's going to be to lose everything. To yeah, fix your mistakes, right? <laughs> uh, what is one piece of technology you've adopted within your four walls that's had a huge impact on operations? Uh, Compete. It's a uh, company out of Austin. It's a back of house um, restaurant specific kind of an ERP system that we run pretty much everything through. And it's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Uh, compete is, uh, slated to be on the show, uh, meeting up with their director of marketing on my way back to New Hampshire and Atlanta. And hopefully in the next couple of months, we're going to get them Fan- on the show. They're, they're fantastic. I could not promote them enough. Beautiful. Uh, this is the last question. It's a doozy. Be ready for it. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom, three things you know to be true that you can leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three truths be? Three things you know to be true. Man, that's like the deepest question anyone's ever hit me with. I don't know. That's, that's don't mess a, around, man. I know, man. That cuts deep. Um, I think as it relates to me specifically, I would say, you know, chase your dreams, you know, don't give up. That would be the first one. Uh, the second one would be, um, just surround yourself with people who are going to make you better. And that doesn't mean just agree with you, but challenge you and, and make you better. Um, and you know, the third thing would be, don't be a dick, just, you know, be, be vulnerable, own your shit and, um, you know, just try to do the right thing and don't, don't act like you know everything. I love it. This has been a great conversation. We wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. So who's one independent restaurant operator, somebody you respect and admire and believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today. Well, you and I talked before the show. I mean, you rattled off pretty much everybody, uh, that I would even, you know, uh, mention, uh, you know, look, I think the agricole guys in Houston, specifically uh, Ryan and Morgan, I think they just do a fantastic job. I've always admired what they do, the brands that they create and the, their operations and their attention to detail and the food and service. And it's just it's they just do a really fantastic job. Ryan, Morgan, look out. I'm coming after you. Would love to get you on the show. And let the folks at home know if you want to come join your team or maybe uh, keep the conversation going or follow you on social media. What's the best way to connect? Yeah. Um, so. Instagram is uh, big for us, just at Dish Society. Our website, of course, uh, Facebook. And, um, you know, look, we're, we're always hiring. We're always uh, looking for exceptional people uh, for roles that exist today or may not exist uh, but will in the future. We've had people come to us and create their own role, um, and we've, uh, we've gone with that. So it's really cool. But, um, yeah, we, we love exceptional people. We're, we're growing, and we need people that support that growth beautiful and if you head over to the restaurant unstoppable.com you'll find a summary of today's discussion uh, any links tools services recommended right there and how to connect with aaron lyons again aaron thank you so much for taking the time to share your story your knowledge your mentorship there is no questioning you are unstoppable thank you cheers 
All right, there we go. Another episode in the archive here at Restaurant Unstoppable. I hope you all found value. Before I let you go, I have to remind you, please sign up for the Restaurant Unstoppable email list. That is where you will never miss an episode and you get the behind the scenes of what's going on here, where I'm at, what's on my mind, and what the future of Restaurant Unstoppable looks like, and you can have an influence on that. Don't forget to connect on social media. That's slash Restaurant Unstoppable on Facebook and at Eric Cacciatore, E-R-I-C. C-A-C-C-I-A-T-O-R-E on Instagram. But the most important thing you can do to support this mission of inspiring, empowering, and transforming our industry is by sharing this sucker with anybody and everybody you know who's aspiring to be great in the industry. All right. Thank you so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out. Peace out.